Welcome to Arcade Attack. A retro gaming podcast for up to four players. Hi guys, Adrian here from Arcade Attack, and on today's show, I'm so delighted to introduce Todd Fry. Now, he is one of Atari's most famous programmers. He was the main man behind Pac-Man for the Atari 2600, and he came up with the amazing Sword Quest series. So sit back and find out so much more about his past experiences, you know, the games he's worked on, and what he's most proud of. It's a really great interview. I know you're going to enjoy it. So sit back and listen to the legend at work. Okay, so on today's show, we've got Todd Fry, a real Atari legend, a real retro gaming legend with us today. Thank you, thank you so much for being here today on the Arcade Attack podcast, Todd. Uh, you're welcome. It's my pleasure. Right, I guess the first question, I'd love to know how you first, what was your first opportunity to get into the video game industry? What was the first sort of doorway into that amazing industry? Um... There's a very, very, uh, I'm basically, um, Atari in 79. Yeah. I had uh, a couple people I'd known from the 72, 73 in high school and college were working at Atari and I was looking for work as a computer programmer and that's when I ended up there. Excellent. Um, I, I don't want to spend, spend too long on Pac-Man because, you know, I really want to ask you about Sword Quest, but really quickly, you know, Pac-Man is one of the most infamous games of all time. Um, <laughs> what, what was it like working on Pac-Man? How would you describe that 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 time of your life? Um, you know, that was very a very very intense and focused and dedicated time. Yeah. Um, just really, really focused on writing. <laughs> on, on writing VCS code. Yeah. It was incredibly focused and intense. Brilliant. Um, I actually read your recent uh, interview in the Retro Gamer magazine. I'd say it's really quite interesting. Um, I mean, I haven't read that one yet. <laughs> yeah, it, just, it came through a few weeks ago, uh, yeah, very recently. So, a really, really excellent article, I have to say. Um, is there any truth that you had your heart set on creating Defender instead of Pac-Man? Is there, there are sort of rumors out there. Is there any truth to that? Well, you know, it's actually interesting. Um, the way you put that, had my heart set on, um, the answer is no. Right. Um, the fact is that I was not, uh, Pac-Man did not sing to me. Right. Um, Given if you, in fact, we had Pac-Man and Defenders in our arcade analysis room, and I played Defenders. Fair enough. And I would play Defenders 999 times out of a 1,000, and Pac-Man won. Yeah. Um, but this will sound odd, but I was, I'm a professional. Yeah. So when it came down to... Um, we need Pac-Man or Defenders done. Um, I just said, whichever, and did Pac-Man. Yeah. Because, you know, 
No, because it was working on making games, not playing games for fun. No, of course you. You know, you're one of the fourth, one of the earliest people in the industry, and I appreciate you know you, you obviously worked hard on those games. Um, how's it? How do you reflect back on your time <coughs> working on Pac-Man? It's one of the best-selling games uh, for Atari, of course. Um, it did get a sort of mixed response. I think is that fair to say? But I, I mean, I, I think, and I've read read a lot about the game. You you got a lot out of out of the Atari Twenty Six Hundred. Some people thought possibly impossible to get Pac-Man working. So, was it? A, were you a bit bemused at the time reading these mixed art, uh, reviews? You know, the truth is that at the time I was not. Um, and again, this is like this is actually kind of interesting. Um, I, I I was you know I was caught up in the Pac-Man hype yeah. um, a little bit, but basically by the time it was actually on the shelves and getting reviews, um, it was in my rearview mirror, and I was on to Sword Quest. Sure, yeah. Um, I had done everything I could. It was done. It was a ROM. It was like. Unfix, you know, unchangeable, effectively, um, and um, it's the way it is with ROMs. You know, they're yeah. done. <laughs> nah, fair I mean, I, I want to move into Sword Quest very, very soon. But final question about Pac-Man: If you could maybe go back in time, is there any elements of the game you would change? I mean, uh, correct me if I'm wrong. Your version supported two-player mode, I believe, and but it had to drop a few things from the arcade version. Are you happy with your decisions, or would there be a few little changes now if you could go back in time? So, depending on how things would go, I had... um, I invested a a fair amount of time in writing a... um, I would say with no false humility whatsoever, a very very cutting-edge kind of flicker management scheme Right. That would make it so that, because you know, the 2600 had only two character um, displays. Yep. Um, that would make it so that um, it would only flicker when it had to. Yeah. So if all, you know, if there were no more than two in one horizontal region, then there would be no flicker. And if all five characters were in the hor- one horizontal region, then it would be a fair. You know, you'd get two out of five on screens. Yep. Um, the truth of the matter is, is that the, uh, my manager at the time uh, looked at my work in progress and said, that is a really interesting idea. No one's ever tried anything like that. Yeah. And I went, wow, that sounds like it's going to be too much work. And I just went to the flicker. <laughs> so there's the flicker. If I had it to do over, I would have put the extra month into... It's very hard technology for the time in 4K. Yeah. I would have put the extra month into Flickr. Um, it never crossed my mind to not do a two-player game, and I am glad of that. Yep. And I would not have done the orange maze on the blue background. I would do a blue maze on a black background. Awesome. That's really largely the two things I would change. Only two things I would change. Mm-hmm. Fair enough. Fair enough. Are... Um, the blue maze on the black background. Yep. And um, whatever I could do to reduce the flicker. Brilliant. No, that's fair enough. And, you know, I, I've got a lot of credit because, you know, I think you've got a lot out of the game, the Atari 2600. I mean, I think you deserve all the credit. Um, 
I'm really interested. I mean, the Pac-Man, a huge game. It might be the thing you're, you're most known for. I don't know if you agree with that statement, Todd. Oh, I would say that is like um, almost unequivocally, uh, you know, that is... <laughs> are, you, are, you, are you okay with that? Are you okay being Mr. Pac-Man or is it, does it annoy you a little bit? Or No, I'm okay with that. I yeah. mean, you know, um, there are so many factors beyond our control. Um, I happen to be the person who ended up writing... The 2600 Pac-Man, and you know, it's basically, honestly, it's weird, because I've had a lot of time to go back and look at it, and it's like, you know, it was a major breakout kind of product. Mm. Um, nothing I've done since actually has the kind of, again, with no false humility whatsoever, <laughs> um, you know, the kind of confluence of historical factors. Yep. I get what you're saying. No, it's, it's, it's part of your legacy, isn't it? Yeah, fair play. Um, it's part of my legacy. Yeah. And a lot of it was just, you know, that I happened to be the person there at the time. Brilliant. I mean, it is true that several people looked at Pac-Man on the 2600 and just threw up their hands in despair. Mm. And it is also true that once I had done it, um, subsequently several people have done what I would consider to be much better implementations. Okay, um, yeah. I have no shame. Mm. No, fair enough. I mean, I'm not ashamed of anything about it. Yeah, no, it's it's part of the well, it's one of Atari's best-selling games. It's part of you know, part of the Atari brand. Yeah, it's huge, wasn't it? Massive. It, it is hands down Atari's most widely, you know, hands down by probably a, close to an order of magnitude. Yeah. The Atari 2600's biggest-selling game. Yeah, and obviously your name's linked to, or properly linked to it. You're, you're the man behind it, so it's, that's a great thing to have on your on your CV. Obviously, <laughs> yeah, yeah, it is entertaining. <laughs> it is a mixed bag because it is, you know, how it is. Um, in the retro gaming community, there is a school of thought that says that it is the steaming pile of, um, you know, presence. <laughs> yeah. Um, and there's also the flip side, which is the millions of people who were not um, um, inclined. The millions of people who enjoyed hundreds of hours playing it. Yeah, so. yeah, yeah. It's probably one, the, one, you know, one of the games you made that's had the most hours put in by people around the world. And you, oh, I am absolutely certain that it is the game that had the most hours put in of any of the games I did. It was just. It was a thing that happened. It was a, you know, it yeah. was a cultural event. Yeah. Um, you know, when games were cruising along, most of them selling around a hundred thousand, that one popped up to ten million right away. That's a huge event. <laughs> wow. Um, and that means that millions and millions and millions of people played it. Yeah, <laughs> it's well, just, of course. It's it was it was a anomaly. That's ama- That's amazing numbers, isn't it? Um, before I move on to Sword Quest, I'd love to ask, cause I've, I've, <clears throat> I've had the luck and the honor to interview quite a few Atari legends like Warren Robinette and, uh, I'm t- uh, just so many people that worked at Atari. It's absolutely inc- incredible. Um, what, I, I know a, f- a few people back then, especially in the early days of Atari, were a little bit miffed that sometimes the programmers didn't always get the credit they deserved. So I know that Warren, hidden a bit of an Easter egg and so forth. And what do you think? Did you feel like Atari was given you the, the, the sort of credit you deserved? Is that, is that an unfair statement? What do you, what do you reckon? 
Well, you know, um, no. I mean, actually, um, you know, you, you, I, I assume, you know, it's like a lot of, um, uh, no. As far as Atari was concerned, our names were not going out there. I think that changed a little towards the end. Sure. Um, I wasn't really attuned to that as yeah. a concern. I was just turning the crank and doing the best I could. Yeah. Um, but there were people who felt like um, it would be who felt like yeah yeah okay so uh, take just a, a little diversion. I mean this was um, this was like kind of a, a very early collision between media and technology. Yeah. And, you know, you were going from, you know, like computer programmers who were like hired software engineers were ending up making things that looked like media products like books or, or movies or television shows. Yeah. And, um, some people were attuned to the fact this is authorship, and some, some people were not. Yeah. And um, Warren is absolutely right. Atari did not view us as authors, and some of us felt like it was important for us to be seen as authors. Mm. No, yeah, I, I think that's fair enough. I suppose it's where you stand on a personal level, isn't it, I guess? So I appreciate your honest answer. Thank you, Todd. Very much appreciated. Um I, I found out about the Sword Quest uh, series of games a few years ago, and it's a, it's it's really fascinated me. I, I put my hands up, Todd. When it was being devised, I was still still a baby, if I'm being honest. But it's one of the most incredible competitions, most amazing, ambitious sort of video game events in history. It's proper. It just really does fascinate me. And I I, I did a recent podcast trying to look at it and a bit of a homage to it. Do you remember who actually came up with the original idea for Sword Quest and the amazing uh, quest alongside it? And how? When did you first start on this really ambitious project? Well, um, I could give you some background, but the fact of the matter is that it was my vision and my idea. Oh, really? And I was the primary. Um, you know, these days they call them showrunners. Yep. I was the um, creative force behind the whole thing. Mm-hmm. And um, I first came up with it. Um, there was a large offsite in Monterey um, about, you know, sort of creative thinking around. Yep. And... Uh, what was happening is people were starting to notice that we were owned by Warner and Warner owned DC Comics. Yep. And maybe we should start doing these tie-in crossover connections, which we did. I mean, I think, um, I don't remember which the first, um, comic book tie-in, you know, comic book pack-in with a cartridge was. Yep. But then I realized that we owned Franklin Mint. I mean, that Warner also owned an organization called Franklin Mint, yep. which was a collectibles company. And so it literally just came to me, you know, yeah. let's do it literally. Let's do a contest with 
prizes and comic books and cartridges based on effectively this grail quest tied in with these mythical, mythological systems from all across diverse cultures. Yeah. And um, it was, you know, uh, there was a very literary element to it. Yep. And um, there was a lot of background and, um, you know, very, very little familiarity I had with the notion of, um, you know, I'm, I'm from the West Coast. I was in the West Coast in the 70s. Um, exposure to all of these um, mystical Systems, yeah, yeah. Uh, the legacy of uh, culture, and they all just came together basically in basically one fell swoop, and um, and apparently it was you know it was a resonant concept, and they backed it, and we did it. Well, I, I'm sure you agree that Atari they put their weight behind your idea, didn't they? They put a lot of money into the prizes. Uh, the quality of the comics are amazing. The games, obviously, themselves are very well done. I think it was oh, cool. a it was a huge package, and I think Atari deserve credit for that. Especially, well, initially at least, um, it must be very exciting. It was it? It must be really exciting. <coughs> Sorry, Todd, to get your amazing idea off the ground. Is that a fair thing to say? So it was really exciting, but you know, the thing is that the flip side of that, it was an incredible challenge. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, the the um. The easy part was the um, literary component, yeah, and the you know the tie-ins with the visions. But then, you know, I'll, in, it, I consider largely Howard, Scott Warshaw, and I. Oh yeah, yeah. To have been trying these, I mean, literally trying these action adventure tie-ins. Yeah. Right. So the point was that Sword Quest was supposed to combine the best features of Warren Robinette's adventure mm-hmm. with arcade gameplay. Mm. And that was a. I, I don't actually know what was that. OK, so finish sentences, Todd. That was very cutting edge. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, in other places, maybe, I think possibly on the Apples, and um, that was pre-PC, so some of the other gaming environments, of which there weren't hardly any, I think people were starting to do these text adventures. But this was the very, very early days of um, combining what we call Twitch gameplay with adventure gameplay. Mm. Yeah, so it's and a Howard new... Certainly, sorry. Go on. No, I was going to say, yeah, like you created a new genre, didn't you, really? A whole new... Howard and I ended up combining two genres to create a new genre. Mm. I don't know if we were the first ever, but we were um, very much right in there with the pitfall. And, um, and so... It was tremendously exciting, but I was much more focused on the challenge of making it happen. Yep. Yep. Yeah, I mean, there's, I, I, again, I, you tell me, Todd, I assume there's loads of people from different directions pulling from everywhere. It must be quite, quite difficult to manage. Is that fair enough? Or? Well, you know, actually, 
it was a strange thing. And Atari was really kind of um, balkanized. Um, I We pretty much... So Dan Hitchens did um, Earthworld. Oh, okay. And it was... Um, and he pretty much, you know, came up with, okay, great, I can do these... Um, five, six, seven, however many it was, um, kind of abridged adaptations of, of um, arcade gameplay dynamics. Yep. Which was the Twitch component. And then he, that one was based on the Zodiac, so he could put together, you know, this map of the rooms and the puzzle pieces in the rooms. Yep. And so he pretty much just did it um, based on, and I, I trusted him, um, based on the loose direction of, you know, puzzle, zodiac. Um, you know, it was the kind of thing that was meant to be an adventure where you didn't know it was based on the zodiac. Oh, okay. Clearly, the comic book hinted at that. Yeah. Do you know how these adventure games work? It's like you go to the left and see where you show up, and then you go to the right, and you slowly make a map of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we expected people to eventually realize, you know, that all of these various dynamics, and, you know, it sort of goes fractal, because in the signs of the Zodiac, um, there are... Earth, fire, water, water, and air signs. Yeah. And, um, but it was meant to be a merge of an adventure. And so I basically laid out the thematic properties of Earthworld. Right. And let Dan fill it in. And all the other parts that were moving along, all of the marketing stuff, I basically set that in motion with my creative direction. Mm-hmm. And then um, it went off on its own. I mean, I did have these conversations about the sequence of what the prizes should be. Yep. Because they were related to... Um, um, you know, this, uh, geez, they were related to the, the story of spiritual evolution. Right, okay. And attainment and grail quest that kind of enfolded the whole thing where you, you know, that I forget the exact sequence. It's been a long time. Yeah, yeah. But the thief, um, warrior, king, wizard, you know, um, you know, this is why the Philosopher's Stone and the Sword of Ultimate Sorcery, this was all, all, so that progression I was a part of, but I have absolutely no idea what precious metals and gems they chose for which. Um, and I had just some, we had a few meetings with the comic book writers to get basically the, the universe, as they call it, these days um, laid out um, and what they you know so basically a lot of those parts just picked up and went off by themselves without me once I had established the fundamental creative direction nice. 
Did you um, personally get to hold all the five treasures? You, you obviously, saw I them. never ever saw any of the treasures in my life. What? Seri- wow! Seriously, you know, it's interesting to have you ask that question yeah. because I was so focused in on the products and the technology yeah. that I actually. You know, like I say, I was not one of these people who needed, who really needed my name on the box. Right. Yeah. Um, so I kind of like, I kind of took a back seat, maybe. My part. Yeah. And um, <laughs> looking back, I kind of regret not having been having having a broader vision of it. Yeah. Of course, I've, you know, it's your baby, isn't it? <clears throat> you know. <I> don't, <clears throat> excuse me, Scott. I don't think anyone could blame you if you wanted, you know, if you were trying to get a bit more involved and get your name out there. I think. It sounds like you're quite humble and obviously down to earth. So, wow. I was really focused. You know, making the Atari Twenty Six Hundred actually um, execute a game mm. is uh, trivially easy for trivially simple games. Yeah. But we were a, a large amount of my attention had to go to trying to make these things possible. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Um, the initial reaction to Earthworld was huge. I mean, Earthworld was a big success. Atari must have been really pl- You must have been loving it as well. Did it surpass your expectations of sales? Did it surpass Atari's? It was just so interesting. I don't remember paying attention to that stuff. Right, yeah. I was on to the next thing already. You're, I mean, I was yeah. on to the next... Fireworld, um, yeah. Fireworld, is that fair? Or making the next game in the series, I suppose. Yeah, I would have to. This is so long ago. Yeah. Um, yes, I was working on Fireworld. I mean, did you have any sort of thought about the actual people taking part in the actual competitions? Did you ever go to any? I comp- didn't really. It is just really interesting. This is a really interesting line of questions and to look back. Yeah. yeah. It's like I was so focused on making. You know, this is not like. Um, I don't know anything about making movies, but I can tell you that coding Fireworld on the 2600 is harder. <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, no, I, no, Todd, I really, you're being honest, and it seems like you're so focused on the games that you just let everyone else kind of get on with the rest of the stuff. So, you know, that's, that's all good. Um, I mean, Fireworld, again, another huge hit, done really, really well. How... Was it difficult to match or even surpass the previous game? What was your try and take on the next instalment compared to Earthworld? Well, no, not really. I mean, um, I was just trying to... um, So the interesting thing about this, again, these are very thought-provoking questions. Um, Pac-Man has gotten so much attention. You know, I know... Name drop. I know that Ernie Klein is really a huge SwordQuest fan. Right. Okay. Uh, and um, and I'm just beginning to see. I mean, this is 36 years ago. 36, <laughs> 37 years. Uh, yeah. It's yeah. Amazing, isn't it? It is amazing. Uh, and um, and so I haven't really. I put a lot of time. You know, I I present at these retro gaming exhibitions and. Um, and I, I thought, you know, so 
these are really thought-provoking questions. Thank you very much. Oh, that's my um, pleasure. Thank you. My intention for Airworld was in the direction of a magnum opus. Mm. My directions, intentions for Fireworld were just to kind of maintain the progression. Right. To attain the same level of performance of, um, of, of Earthworld. Yeah. And have the progression in the story and to have the next installment in, um, you know, uh, let's see. Fireworld used the, um, used the Kambala as a map. Yes. Yeah. I read about that. Incredible. And uh, was intended to have some of the imagery out of the Kabbalah. Yeah. Um, and then it had, a, so it was a much more complicated map than the Zodiac. And there is some question as to whether people would actually end up with that graph and actually pick it up when they did the puzzles. Yeah. But I was just trying to match. I was just trying to keep it going. You know, a bun- um, it's very challenging, uh, makes a bunch of little action games. Yep. Um, you know, and build the map in and, um, get the puzzle in. Was, and then, was, but it was hard. Yeah, no. And then, I forget the name of the writer who wrote um, Waterworld. Yeah. Steve Baker, maybe? Okay. I don't know. I'd have to track that down. It's been so long. Um, by then, things were starting to cool down, and it was almost like an afterthought. Okay. But um, but that was the same thing as Earthworld, where I set the creative direction, and... Um, And it was written. You know how it works then. Because we are in these earth, fire, water themes, um, we tried to um, do the action games that were kind of related to. Mm. But even that, those three were basically all the same thing. It's kind of like episodic TV. Yeah, yeah. Where you're just trying to make this, uh, an episode that's as good as the previous one, which is difficult sometimes, isn't it? But yeah, no, good. And uh, out, out of all the games, out of all the, I say four. I don't know if we can talk about Airworld a bit later. But have you got a personal favourite Sword Quest game that you made or helped produce? Oh, indeed, I do, and that is Airworld, the game that never got anywhere close to finish. <laughs> Yeah, Airworld, I, re- <clears throat> I read the rumours that it was never actually fully completed. Um, I'd love to ask how far you got into making this game and you know, why it's your personal favourite, really. Well, so Airworld was based on the I Ching. Yeah. And I got... I had this much more... By then, you know, we were on to my fourth Atari 2600 game... Um, what I intended for Airworld was a, if at all possible, a, a game with emergent gameplay where the, there were the six 
lines in a hexagram, which is composed of two trigrams of three each, and it's all part of this very, very sophisticated and ancient mythological system from China. Yeah. And I intended to put together a game and started. I had my hexagram on the screen. Mm-hmm. A lot more to it than that. And I was spending my time looking at the I Ching and trying to come up with a way where I could derive the rules for gameplay from the hexagram and have each of the 64 gameplay screens be unique and related to the yin and yang lines in the hexagram and, if at all possible, related somehow to the mythological meaning of the hexagram in the I Ching itself. <laughs> that sounds really ambitious. <laughs> it was really ambitious. Wow. You know, in some ways, it would be like um, um, the, the simplest. So if you start this stuff thinking, here I have hexagrams with yin and yang lines. How about if I do a thing where there are... Um, I look at Taz, which was done by Steve Weida, which is uh, a very ro- um, very row-based game yeah. where you have bunches of rows where objects are moving horizontally and you have the player, which can jump between the rows. Mm. So I was going there and I was going, so what if I do a thing where your object on a yin line is one you want to pick up and an object on a yang line is one you want to avoid. And then find some other set of rules which they use to decide whether they want to track you or dodge you. Whether they go fast or slow. Um, Whether they can, whether they bounce at the edges of the screen or whether they wrap around the edges of the screen. I was trying to work out a logical grid of generated gameplay. And uh, it was a lot of thinking. It was actually very ambitious. I it was. Um, I mean, it's a crazy idea, but would you ever be half-tempted to finally release this game? I'm sure... There's still quite a big homebrew scene on 2600. Would you ever, even for a split second, go and think, I want to finish this bad boy? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Good. (laughs) I mean, so there's really would be two things I would do. Oh, you know, um, I I have looked at, this year at Portland Retro, Game Drop Portland Retro Gamer Exhibition in Portland, um, I gave a presentation about how to reduce flicker. Yeah. And I worked through some code and found really a small amount of ROM and a small amount of RAM that I could use to say, if I have five, two players and I want to shove five objects into them, um, how do I get the fair flicker duty cycle? Yeah. And I am not untempted yeah. to go back and look at 2600 Pac-Man and see if I can squeeze those and change the color <laughs> of the background to black and the maze to blue. Yeah. 
and see if I can squeeze the RAM and ROM out of it to change the flicker. Mm. Not untempted. Um, it sounds like a daunting task, and I probably won't get around to it ever. That's a shame. <laughs> and I am aware that um, Airworld is left undone. Yeah. And there are scenarios... You know, people joke. I don't even, I don't actually think they're joking about doing these, um, GoFundMe's or whatever. Yeah, yeah, you know. a Kickstarter campaign possibly. Kickstarter to pay Todd to write Airwolf. <laughs> I, I'm, and, I'm sure it'll be very popular. I, and, um, again, you know, I'd have to consider straight up, I have rules. Yeah. Um, I would consider a 16K ROM, but not the RAM extension. Right. And I would prefer probably to do it in an 8K ROM. And I can probably do that. And if I stick with the, you know, the gameplay that I was just describing, using the hexagram to help to inform how the mini game worked. Yeah. And basically have 64 interesting and entertaining mini games nice. is a challenge of a spectacular <laughs> ambitious undertaking. It sounds like a huge quest in itself to be it's honest. The quest for Airworld. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, but, uh, I, you know, I, I, I wouldn't, I, I, I can't, fortunately the future is vast. Yep. Um, and, um, I don't, I'm going to intentionally use a double negative here, Adrian. <laughs> I don't not consider it. <laughs> it's a good answer. <laughs> good stuff. And I'm, look. I, I suppose if there's enough fans pushing you, possibly that might tempt you a bit more. But <laughs> well, you know, when you go to some place like some of the retro gaming exhibitions, I make it to, yeah. um, there the people there are the ones who would want me to make Airworld. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, it'd be lovely to finally finish off the four the quartet of games, wouldn't it? It would, it would be beautiful, in fact. Um, it would be. I, I, now I can't do anything about the missing prizes. Yes. Yes, yeah, so I was going to briefly talk about it later, but I, I, you know, I'm assuming you probably don't know too much about them. But we, uh, could, <clears throat> could I ask actually? And I, I'll probably be uh, charged with pitfalls if I ask this question. Now I know there was two um, tournaments that went ahead, um, Earthworld and Fireworld, but there are rumours. And again, you, you may not know this or even be able to say, but there were rumours that a Waterworld competition did happen, but sort of under wraps quietly. You, I know nothing about that. Fair enough. I, you know, if I didn't ask it, I'd, I'd be, um, you know, I'd be loads I mean, of words. I, you know, I can't even tell whether that's lost in the mists of my memory or yeah. whether it never happened. Um, for Fireworld and, and um, Earthworld, we made custom versions of the game with slight variations in the puzzle. Yeah. Yeah. And I do not remember that happening for Waterworld. Okay. Um, Waterworld, I'd have to look at the timeline. Waterworld was happening in a time of what I would call Atari Descendant. Yeah. I, yeah. Atari Ascendant. Uh, yeah, I want to talk about it because obviously the Sword Quest competition, the whole 
quest didn't finish, Airworld wasn't complete. Like you said, Waterworld was kind of being sort of watered down a bit, you could argue. I mean, how did it feel? How how did it first, when did you first realise that maybe this quest wouldn't be finished and how did you reflect back at that time? Were you majorly disappointed? Um, you know, it is really thought-provoking. So with Airworld, I was prototyping. I had, I had basically the visual, the rendering, the kernel, the display, the graphics yeah. all, all put together. And I was starting to sort out the gameplay. Yeah. And Xevious was very popular in the arcade, not as popular as Pac-Man. And um, uh, to my recollection, three programmers were asked to start and look at it. Yeah. And each of them threw up their hands in despair and said, I don't see how you can do this. So I... I ended up being told <laughs> to stop work on air or ask. It's hard to tell because um, of the kind of employee I am. Um, I may have merely been asked, um, but told to stop working on Airworld and undertake Xevious. Sure. And the nature of the beast is such that um, I did not throw my hands up in despair. And say it can't be done. Yeah. I um, went on to do it. Fair enough. Um, you didn't cause a fuss. You, you got on with your job, I suppose. Like I said before, you. Just... I didn't cause a fuss. I got on with my job, and I um, set aside uh, Airworld, assuming I would get back to it. Mm. Um, that did not happen. By the time I was done with Xevious, which is a technical masterpiece of spectacular proportion, I will say with zero false humility whatsoever. <laughs> um, the interest was no, you know, this, the contest was essentially canceled already, and yeah. I went on to work on um, my, my Atari 2600 Ball Blazers, yeah. which was just off the charts hard. I kind of, I kind of may have lost my way some, and, and um, stopped and um, started caring more about the technical challenge than the gameplay at some point. Okay, fair enough. But so it goes. <laughs> now, um, again, I assume <clears throat> I know the answer already to this question, but I'll ask it. Um, there are strong rumours that the free prizes, the the crown. The Philosopher's Stone, the sword that were never awarded. Uh, no one's quite sure where they are. A lot of people feel that the Tremel, it might be still with the Tremel family. I mean, <clears throat> I know you never saw the prizes, but do you have any ideas or inkling or any? Absolutely no, no clue whatsoever. <laughs> I am like, yeah. I, 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 I like have, don't even have the foggiest notion of what could have happened to you. Oh, fair enough. It's, Let's. I, do you kind of hope they too do turn up one day? Would Would you love to actually? I think that would be exciting. That would be fun. That would be really sweet. Yeah. Wouldn't that be nice? I'll tell you what. If someone finds the last two prizes, <laughs> I almost said that. If someone finds the last two prizes, I will write Airworld. Wow, that's <laughs> that's an. Ex <laughs> that there you go. So if anyone's got a, a, a crazy sword in their attic or something, come forward. <laughs> It could be the one, eh? Um, 
if you could own any of the five prizes yourself, any of the five kind of treasures, do you have a personal favourite? I know, I know you've probably seen photos. Is there one you'd love to have if you could choose one? Well, I mean, you know, the thing is that I would make that decision strictly based on the um, on the metaphysical prowess of the individual prizes. Ah, yes. And that would be challenging. Because to actually have the grail yes. would be a mythological accomplishment. <laughs> it would be the philosopher's stone, on the other hand. Yeah. Very big deal. But, you know, ultimately, I have to go with the sort of ultimate sorcery. <laughs> because, <Yeah>. uh, <laughs> you know, the grand prize is that ascendant, transcendent, merging with what it is to know and be all in the universe. Yeah. Yeah, I, I uh, the sword looks awesome as well, I have to say. <laughs> I've seen the photos. That's a good answer. Again, I, I just I can really only do this on the uh, creative properties. <laughs> that and and just you know, just it's worth a bit more than the other prize as well, but that's not important of course. <laughs> Uh, that's actually not. Yeah. It's like, you know, the thing is that there's a progression to this, so I would want the biggest prize. Yeah, no. <laughs> that, of course. Of course. Um, <clears throat> obviously, you worked at Atari during the big crash. It must have, well, again, I can't imagine what it was like. Um, if you could travel back in time, if we had this crazy time machine, it, it, would you give Nolan Bushnell a bit of different advice about maybe how to avoid the crash? Why do you think the well, crash happened, and what could you what could have been done to avoid it, if, if anything? So, by then Nolan was gone. Yes. Okay. Yeah. If there was, and you know, I will say, with all generosity to the parties involved, mm. that um, no one knew anything. Howard says this. Yeah. He says there's a guy in Hollywood who says the thing about about the thing about movies is no one knows anything. Yeah. It may be that that's less true than it used to be. But in the video game industry, in what it is to be a civilization that has video games as part of the economy and the culture, everything was happening for the first time ever back then. Yeah. So I say that uh, basically Atari needed to make a new console. Mm. It needed to have a new console out in about 1981, mm. maybe 82 at the latest. By 82, we should have had a new console, and um, we should have had basically the stuff that is now standard in video games, you know, which is protection. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, DRM, digital rights management, all that stuff that was there in the um, Famicom and the Nintendo, that the next product that made it. Yeah. Um, you know, Atari, no one there had any idea about how long you could keep a piece of hardware going. Yep. And clearly, when they made the 2600, no one had any idea about how you could protect the content, protect how you could um, monetize third-party cartridges. Yeah. So this is businessy stuff. But um, basically, our gate count on the 2600 was inadequate for 1982. 
and the way that anyone could slam out a cartridge um, was fine for 78, 79, <laughs> 80. But, um, you know, but the thing is, no one knew. It was getting to be pretty obvious that we should freshen up our chipset. Yep. But no one had any idea of what to do about the installed base and how to make a transition in the marketplace. Um, no one had any idea. Yes. Uh, the only thing that worked was for the company to basically evaporate and for some other company to come in with a new console. Yeah. And then obviously Nintendo came in and Sega and so forth. Um, and the thing that should have happened is that Atari should have had approximately the Nintendo Famicom, the NES, going into the market in 1982. Yeah. And it should have taken all of the vast revenue it had at the time and put it behind that. But no one, no one, it was a tough, it's actually really tough when you have, I mean, I can see, I mean, I'm not, I wasn't in the ops and business end of it. Yeah. But um, I can see. <laughs> yeah. Um, the 2600 was dead. Yeah, I mean, sad, but it's a, well, it's a bit of a sad statement, but probably true. So, yeah. No, again, <clears throat> in hindsight, we companies would do lots of things, wouldn't they? But I think that's good advice. Well, we knew that and we tried, but no one could actually, no one could actually, actually take the initiative. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm a huge Atari Jaguar fan, but that. Oh, yeah. Well, duh. Yeah, it's a, it's a good console. And it was Atari's last throw of the dice, wasn't it? I know they got the Atari box or DCS coming out soon. Well, that was, you know, I actually don't really consider the Tramel Atari to be Atari, but that's just because of my cultural bias. Oh, okay. Um, That was, um, I mean, I was gone. I know a lot of people who were there then, and it was a heck of a machine, as was the Epics. Yeah. I mean, the, not the Apex. Yeah, the Jaguar. Yeah, the Jaguar, yeah. And the Link. Yeah, the Link. The yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Powerful machines. Yeah. Great machines. Yeah. Yeah. That's part of a whole other conversation. <laughs> but, um, yeah. Yeah. That's what it's, I was going to say, um, obviously, when did you leave Atari? What was your next project? So I know you went on to work at Axlon 3DO. I'd love to get a very quick idea about how you so the Atari, Atari evaporated or transitioned to the Tremels, and the Tremels did a very harsh um, decimation, mm. um, followed by um, a kind of a sorting through the rubble, of which I was part. And um, they were interested not in video game developers, but in operating system developers, because they were doing the ST. Of course, yeah. Tremels brought Atari to do their Amiga competitor. Yep. And there's a lot to be, I like the ST a lot. There's a lot to be said for it. But I was not one of the people they saw as the person who would help them make spreadsheets on the ST. Fair enough. Um, so my next moderately substantiative gig, my next like release title was at Epics, where I went 
you know, I mean, I, I had plenty of money when Atari evaporated. <laughs> so I took some time off. Um, my next substantive gig was at Epics yep. in 87, where I worked on the uh, 2600 ports of their uh, Olympics game series. Mm-hmm. Uh, winter games, summer games. Um, I worked on a prototype for a Max Headroom cartridge, which was, again, an impossible technology on the 2600. Yeah. And, I, and then I did go and work with Nolan at Axlon, where I did Save Mary and Shooting Arcade. Save Mary maybe amongst the very last, if not the last, actually completed commercial 2600 game. Oh, really? That never shipped. <laughs> And, you know, and then, um, yeah, I kicked around, took some more time off. Actually, the truth of the matter is I have a second career as a, as a carpenter. Honestly, so I spent wow. a few years doing uh, remodels and home construction around the Bay Area. We had a big old fire here. <laughs> and I had job. I uh, worked for quite a while as a carpenter rebuilding building houses where wow. houses had burned down. Wow. Then I got back um, and ended up at 3DO. Yeah. And 3DO was nice, interesting, because we had a whole cluster of 2,600 programmers there. Yeah, like a reunion almost, I suppose. We had Rob Zadibble, Bob Smith, Todd Fry, and Howard Scott Warshaw. Wow. And that was really interesting. And then, you know, on and on. And now I work at an artificial intelligence startup called Bonsai. Yeah, yeah. Doing, uh, I guess the, um, the uh, attraction to impossible tech is still there. <laughs> that sounds really, we'll talk, I could talk right at the end about that if that's all right. Um, I'd love to know actually, was there any video games you started to work on in any platform that you really were quite proud of, but, Maybe not Airworld, but is there any other game that you never quite finished and you got almost got well, released? No, the next, the, the probably game that I worked on, um, 3DO's Nintendo 64 Battle Tanks. Oh, wow. Is one of the best, and it, but it did ship. There's nothing else I started that didn't ship. Okay. Um, because I learned to ship product, whether it was whether I was proud of it or not, I made it. And it was my job is to make the product be done. Um, <laughs> but I think that Battle Tanks is like just is the game I think is the most funnest game. How's that for grammar? Yeah, yeah. Um, that I, you know, that was Rob Smith. Uh, Rob Zadibble was the um, lead, the project lead on that, and he did a. That spectacular job, and it is a really fun game. I will look into that. Definitely. It, it, so you made it for the 3DO, and what was the other platform? Sorry, the N. Um, well, I did a lot. I, I came to 3DO a lot on PlayStation One. Oh, okay, yeah, 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 yeah. So I did. I was the director on the PlayStation port of Battle Tanks. Brilliant. Which was fun, but not as fun as the original. There you go. I mean, <clears throat> the 3DO, very interesting console. I mean, it's 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 got a bit of a a bit of a cult status. I wouldn't. I don't know if you agree with me, Tom. But it never really 
managed to really compete against the real big, big players. But it's a powerful machine. I mean, didn't, why do you think it never so, quite got where it should have gone? 3DO existed in three phases. Yeah. The first one was trying to get that console out. I was not around for that. Yeah. The second one was living between when the console failed effectively and um, they decided to make the transition to doing console games for the Nintendo and the PlayStation. Okay. The third one was when they became effectively a console game company. Yeah. And I was there for the Nintendo 64, PlayStation 1, uh, GameCube and PlayStation 2 phase of 3DO. Nice. No, nice. So you, you were there making the games, not worrying about the hardware again. So that sounds... I was there making the games, not worrying about the hardware. It would have, might have been interesting to be there worrying about the hardware. <laughs> Good. Um, I, I mean, is that your most proud game you worked on? I know you, we've spoken about some of your huge, biggest games. Is there a particular title you think, yep, my favorite? I do not. Um, proudest games I worked on are Battle Tanks, yep. Xevious, Pac-Man, and Fireworld. Nice. Yeah, that's a good, that's a good selection. Yeah. Is Sword Quest. Cause really I was the showrunner and the creative vision. It was my baby. Sword Quest was my baby. Um, Pac-Man, I'm very proud of. Yep. Um, Xevious, I'm extremely proud of. Yep. Technically. And Battle Tanks, Nintendo 64, most funnest. I'm going to get that. <laughs> I'm a big N64 <laughs> fan as well, so I'm going to get Battle Tanks as soon as I say goodbye today. I can't wait to try that game out. Right. And I do have to start moving along soonish. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, um, fine. Well, really quickly, um, the Panorama question. So you talked about AI. What, what exactly are you doing at Bonsai then, if you don't want me asking? I'm a principal technical fellow at Bonsai. We're a reinforcement learning artificial intelligence platform, which means we are doing the kind of artificial intelligence. So that is mega hard and a little bit past the cutting edge. Um, And I have a broad generalist role there, which is uh, working with with various divisions and, you know, I um I do artificial intelligence. I mean, that's and, I, and I do practical applied artificial intelligence. There's a lot of research going on, but the really interesting thing about Bonsai is that we are trying to productize cutting edge research earlier than otherwise. Yeah, yeah. That that does sound so fascinating, I have to say. All right, I know you're busy, Todd, so final question. Uh, we ask all our guests this. If you could share a few drinks with a video game character, who would you choose and why? With a video game character? <laughs> yeah. Oh, my gosh. Oh, Lara Croft. <laughs> that, is a, that is a popular answer. I'll tell you that for free. <laughs> Good stuff. Um, now, Todd, it's been a real pleasure and I, I know you're a busy man and thank you for squeezing us into that. You know, it's so brilliant answer, so insightful. I know our listeners are going to love this. So it's, it's been a real pleasure talking to you. So thank you so much, Todd. Oh, you're, you're so welcome. Brilliant. Thank you for your thought provoking. You know, now I will get to spend some time, um, starting to, it is strange after all of this time, Adrian. 
Like Howard says, it's a waste of time to defend Pac-Man. And I go, well, I got plenty of time. I get 24 hours every day. Yeah. It's effectively free time. So I'm going to give it my best shot. (laughs) Um, But now what's happening is that um, Sword Quest is starting to get buzz. Not, Not so much get buzz, but starting to suggest itself for attention. Yeah. Well, it's an incredible story. I, I found it incredible when I learned more about it. And it's like learning more about it today is actually amazing. So I think you could write a book. You know, I think you should write a book about your, your, your life in Atari and beyond personally, but that's just my, I, if I, if only maybe I should, um, Maybe I should get Ernie Klein to co- ghostwrite it for me. There you go then. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you could take it. <laughs> All right, um, Todd, I'll, I'll speak to you soon, hopefully another day. But again, thank you so much uh, and good luck with all your future projects and hopefully well, Airworld. <laughs> well, we'll find out. I'm not saying Airworld won't get written. <laughs> there you go then. All right, um, I'll, see, I'll speak to you soon, Todd. Take care. Bye-bye. All right, bye-bye. Thanks for listening to today's podcast. We really hope you enjoyed it. If you want to get in touch regarding this week's episode or anything else, you can tweet us at UK at Keith Barlow 82 and at Arcade underscore Adriano. We're also on Facebook at facebook.com slash UK. Please check out our website at arcadeattack.co.uk for lots of retro gaming goodness, interviews, reviews, features, top 10s, etc. And you can also find all our previous podcasts there. Our podcasts are available to stream from the website and are available to download for free from Stitcher, Podbean and iTunes, where you can also leave us a review and a rating, which we would really, really appreciate. So until next time, take care and we'll speak to you soon.